Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. Back in November 2020, I moderated a webinar called Is There a Place for Private Equity in the Minerals and Royalties Space? with Kyle Kafka, partner of NCAP Investments, James Wallace, partner of NGP, Lex Hockner, Managing Director of Pickering Energy Partners, and Jason Craig, who at the time was Managing Director of Denim Capital. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Kyle, Jason, Lex, and James had to say. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. Looking forward to another great discussion here focused on the mills and royalty space, specifically around private equity. I think a lot of private equity dollars have come into the space the last four or five years, and uh, many have benefited from those dollars, but many in the uh, shadows criticize it as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to a really good discussion. I'll a lot of things that people talk about in private conversations we'll address here, and uh, I think there'll be some great takeaways. So before we jump in, we're going to launch a poll here in a second, and then by the end, we're going to relaunch the poll, see if we can change the opinions here based on the dialogue. So let's jump into the discussion. So we'll go around the horn. I think, although uh, I'm sure your college degrees and your resumes are flattering, gents, let's do more of a, a background on the minerals and royalties portfolio and strategy of your respective firms. I think that'll be most helpful in painting context for the discussion. And then we'll jump into the discussion points. But before we, Jason, I'll have you kick it off, but before so, the results. So does private equity have a role in the minerals and royalty space? 73% agree, 5% disagree, 22% are unsure. So we'll freeze it there and we'll see where uh, things land towards the end. So Jason, over to you with Denim Capital. So that's a pretty good starting place. At least it's not a hostile audience that we're talking to here. I'll try to do this in a couple of quick minutes. So Denim's a global energy private equity firm. We do a few different things that aren't terribly relevant for today, including metals and mining and power and renewables that are largely international. About half of what we do is oil and gas. And then a significant portion of what we do in oil and gas is minerals, a significant portion of our current investing efforts. We go about that through three active platforms right now. Horizon Resources is based in Denver. They're focused largely on the DJ, newly on Appalachia. They also have a presence in the Permian and Midcon. We're partnered with Live Oak here in Houston. They're focused on the Haynesville. And then, as you guys probably know, we recently partnered with Brinsicki at Haymaker. They're, um, we're the first two, Horizon and Live Oak, are more ground game, cash buyers. Brinsicki and the guys at Haymaker are more big game hunting, looking for large, diversified portfolios of minerals, probably in competition with some of the publics, but again, differentiated by being cash buyers. So that's the, uh, those are the three active investing efforts that we have right now in minerals. Excellent. Kyle, over at NCAP. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining. I guess, you know, I won't do a boring background on college as suggested, but I, I will say this is kind of fun for me. I've known all these guys on the panel for a long time. I did go to college, a couple of them, and the other one's a neighbor and longtime friend. So looking forward to the discussion this morning and fun for me to be on a panel with all these guys. And it's, uh, it's a little unbelievable to think that people might actually be interested in what we have to say. So starting with that, you know, NCAP, actually, we've been investing in minerals for quite a long time. It really goes all the way back to 2006. We initially partnered with a guy named Chris Phillips out of Shreveport, Louisiana, who had really up to that point primarily been buying minerals within kind of their family as a wealth preservation tool. And, you know, he got to looking at it and decided, you know, these are pretty amazing assets. They generate cash flow and we underwrite them on a decline, but then we look up and seven years later, we're making the same amount of cash flow we were when we underwrote them and the investments paid out. And so we looked at it, thought it was pretty interesting and said, you know what, this is a little bit outside of our return profile, but as a part of the portfolio in a larger fund, uh, we thought it made sense to expose some capital to it and learn about it. And so that initial commitment to them was about $30 million in 2006. And at that time, it was really more of a yield strategy. And so really with that initial commitment, we weren't kind of buying ahead of the drill bit as we think about minerals today it was mostly focused on going out and buying, producing cash flow and buying it at an attractive enough yield that we felt like we could make a good return on it. There weren't a lot of people in the market. It was a lot of mailers. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it kind of worked. And while it might not have been the highest rate of return strategy, 
within our portfolio, it was a pretty good ROI um, if you held that asset for a while. And so, you know, over the years, we continued our partnership with Chris. We ended up partnering with him through four different partnerships and exposing a little bit over $200 million to that strategy. And I would tell you, as that went on over about a decade, that strategy continued to change and it evolved from really being that purely yield oriented strategy to, you know, for example, the second partnership, we exposed a little bit of capital to, hey, let's buy in front of the drill bit. You know, you had the Haynesville showing up some of these shell plays where the industry wasn't really being driven by geology as much anymore. And you had these homogeneous things showing up where you felt like you could go get some data points and potentially underwrite the outcomes for some of these wells over a, a larger area. And it really kind of changed the way mineral buying worked. And so we started allocating some capital to throw the drill bit, which we viewed as kind of a higher risk, higher return portion of that mineral portfolio. And, you know, over time, that strategy evolved more and more into that kind of in front of the drill bit, go try to capture a really high quality acreage that we felt like had a high likelihood of being developed. And, you know, I, I would tell you from there, we ended up partnering with multiple different teams who have gone out and pursued a mineral acquisition strategy, you know, Fortis, Pegasus, OGX slash San Elena, Piedra, Rock River, to name a few. And we've exposed quite a bit of capital to the minerals business over the last five years, call it $2 billion. So that's kind of a, a brief background going way back in time, but definitely has been a meaningful part of our strategy and one that we continue to pursue today. Thanks, Kyle. And it's interesting. We'll touch on this later in the discussion, but you started out buying PVP with Phillips and it looks like the pendulum's swinging back in that direction, right? So let's pick up on that, but it would be good to, the old adage, what's old is new again, but we'll revisit that discussion. James over at NGP. Thanks. So uh, similar to MCAP, NGP has been around a long time, uh, 30 years or so. I'd say our participation in the minerals market is more recent. Although it's always been a part of the working answer strategy, you know, business companies that we backed along the way were always buying minerals, you know, most as a strategy to increase their nets over time. But um, I'd say we moved into it in a bigger way probably four or five years ago. You know, similar strategies with the rest of the guys here on a pretty heavy undeveloped focus within those platforms, you know, very heavy Permian focus, which continues today. And really just trying to stay in, in great areas and, and try and have a disproportionate share of the, um, of the drilling and completion activity within those basins. You know, trying to utilize information that we have coming into us from a lot of different places to make smart decisions and trying to craft some interesting partnerships between operators and mineral platforms along the way. Uh, we've got three active platforms today, Wing, Oil and Gas, run by Nick Verrill, uh, Land Run, uh, run by John Mark Bieber and Elk Range, run by Charlie Schufelt. Still a pretty good Permian overlap within those, but also looking at a number of other basins. I'd say the biggest, you know, Tim just touched on it, the biggest shift for us over the last couple of years has really been a shift away from heavy undeveloped focus towards more developed, more cash flow visibility to cash flow at least, which has always been an important part of the strategy, but it's even more important now just because it's so hard to value a lot of the undeveloped. And uh, so that's, we'll get into that some more, I'm sure, but that's kind of a quick high pass on what we've been up to. Perfect. And last but not least, Lex over at Pickering. Thanks, Tim. And you said last but not least, last but perhaps newest to the space for our group. You know, I, I work with Pickering Energy Partners. We work TPH asset management up to about 18 months ago. And over the last 18 months, our, you know, our business is, has changed on the principal investing side pretty dramatically. And part of that has included a, an active mineral strategy, you know, in, in terms of actively seeking to put, put capital to work. We have several different, you know, working interest investments where we're active in, in minerals buying, kind of similar to how James described. But, you know, over the last 18 months, we've, we've been probably active on 10 or 15 different acquisitions and haven't hit yet. Uh, it's been an extremely interesting cost of capital discovery process for us. We, if you're familiar with the space, we, you know, we missed kind of the five or you know, three to five year kind of frothy phase where there were buy and flip opportunities available. And you know, now we've kind of settled into this long game type strategy, which is where we're comfortable and how we're thinking about buying minerals. And we've been active in, in Appalachia and the Haynesville and the Rockies, more recently focused 
in, in the Permian. It's an asset class that we really like. It's obviously unique, but for all the, you know, all the reasons that, that Kyle and Jason and James described, uh, we think it's an appropriate asset class for private equity firms and one that we're very active on. But again, I probably dwarfed by 10x to the smallest, the next smallest on, on the panel in terms of AUM uh, deployed in the middle of space, but we're there and very active. Are you growing and looking to bring on additional members to your team? The Minerals and Royalties Authority is now offering recruitment and staffing services to the broader minerals and royalty space. Whether you're looking for engineering, business development, land, finance, or management level executives, our team has got you covered. By leveraging our industry-leading network and content platform, our team is able to canvas the market to identify, vet, and recruit the right executives that are fit for your team. If you're interested in learning more on how the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help you with your staffing and recruiting needs, then please email me at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Excellent. Well, let's jump into some of the discussion points here. I think a lot of folks say flat out private equity is the wrong cost of capital for minerals. If ideally, you want a pension, you want a family office, you want an insurance company who has extremely low cost of capital, can hold the asset into perpetuity. And because private equity traditionally needs an exit, it's just you're on a, a shot clock. And that puts pressure on timing. Things like COVID and the oil price war push development timing out. It really can screw up with the economics of your portfolio. And now year four, five, six, seven, when you really need to exit for the fund, it doesn't make sense for the asset class. And so a lot of folks say it's just the wrong cost of capital. Now, I believe there's a role that kind of capital and publics can't buy undeveloped. And if all you're doing is buying producing minerals, that's a shrinking universe. So there is a role, at least in the last five to six years, a role for private equity to come in and take that development timing risk and let the assets mature to then exit, right? But I'll let you guys kind of defend yourselves because there's plenty of success cases out there, right? It's not like all dollars in private equity that went out are just stuck and dead. There's plenty of people on this panel who have had companies exit and have made good money. So real quick, around the horn, kind of when you hear that, what is your initial response or defense that PE is the wrong cost of capital? Who's feeling lucky? We'll start with Jason or Kyle. Kyle's uh, you know, Tim, I think you hit on it. I think that easy to say that it's, gosh, it ought to be a super low cost of capital. It's a yield-oriented strategy and so on and so forth. But it kind of depends on which part of the game that you're playing. And certainly to the extent you're taking development risk and timing risk and drill bit risk and economic risk, you know, you start stacking all those risks on top of each other and it becomes something that's not generating cash flow right away. And that given all those risks, we believe can generate a higher return. And hopefully the rest of the market is pricing the asset as such and bidding it to a higher return. You know, I think you could certainly argue that there's been times in the market, times in oil and gas in general, where there's a lot of capital chasing opportunity and therefore the market bid down opportunities to rate of return that maybe was more aggressive. But I think generally speaking, if you're taking development risk, you're taking geologic risk, the development timing is out of your control. There is no cash flow there. Those are the types of things that typically the capital required is going to demand a little bit higher return. And therefore, I think there is a role for private equity to play. You know, as you mentioned, those are hard deals for the public mineral players to do because they do have a large investor base that's very yield oriented. So for them to go do a super dilutive acquisition to their cash flow is difficult. And then I think kind of those lower cost of capital pension type investors that you're talking about also are hesitant to go put a bunch of capital out there that's not going to generate yield. So, you know, I think there's definitely a role to play. Markets are always changing and you know, you've got to adapt your underwriting to reflect kind of the current environment. But I definitely think there's a role for private equity to play. That last comment is important. I think what we're good at as an industry is adapting. And our job is to go find where there's arbitrage opportunities and, and you know, kind of inefficient pockets of the market. And that was a big part of the earlier days of our capital deployment into this space. So, you know, a lot of the quick flip you know, easy arbitrage opportunities are, they're a lot tougher to come by, certainly now, even a, you know, a year ago they were, but the strategies will adapt over time. And I may take a little, I'll push back on the short-sighted nature of our model generally a little bit. I mean, I'm pretty sure all of us are investing with 10 plus year funds. 
So there's really, there's not a, an immediate need to punch out within two years, no matter what, we've got the ability to hold it. And I'd say most of these assets that we've bought and continue to hold the ones that we haven't sold for good outcomes, you know, their intrinsic growth profile still exceeds our hurdle for what we're really trying to achieve. So um, as long as that's the case, I think we're pretty comfortable being patient and not trying to force liquidity when it doesn't make sense. Could I just a, a couple of things to that? You know, part of the criticism with private equity investing in minerals is it's, it's hard to exit in our hold period. And I think there's a nugget of truth to that, especially if you're trying to sell. I guess what I'd say is selling is always hard. And when an investment is underwritten on cash flow, that can be the exit. And especially if it's near-term cash flow, we don't have to sell these things in order to realize our return. And then I would, I would almost flip it on some of the public buyers in the public company needs to be a going concern with a stable or growing cash flow profile. We can easily underwrite a declining cash flow profile in the private world and still return significantly in excess of our cost of capital. And it's just a, a shape that may not fit well for a going concern that, that puts them on a treadmill. So not only do I think there's a spot for private equity, but I think private equity owns a corner of this market that's hard for, for the public to own. And, you know, I'll also point out that it's not easy to sell anything right now in the oil and gas space. You know, if you go back a couple of years, the, you know, the life cycle of, of an oil and gas investment, whether that be a working interest or a mineral interest, was different. I mean, we're in an unhealthy A&D market. We're in an unhealthy capital market. And that's just the facts of life. And the velocity of capital slowed down for everything. If you go back several years, I think that there was an emerging public market for you know, mineral buyers and more coming, you know, I think Fortis is a great example. And then the world fell apart for our business. And I don't think that that's unique to minerals. So if you look forward to recovery in our space and you look forward to healthy capital and A&D markets, I think that timeline compresses like it will for all asset classes on, you know, in terms of timeline, in terms of the rate of return, you know, I, I think there is a pretty strong argument for a mineral asset class to be a, to having a lower risk profile than a working interest and perhaps having, you know, on the flip side of, you know, it, it can have a lower cost of capital and, and a lower return profile. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is when, you know, when you go to underwrite something and you bring it to your committee, it's not going to say 25% and two and a half X every time, you know, it's sometimes going to say 22% or or 28% or 35% or 17%, right? And, and the fact, I mean, the, the reality is there's a, you're not going to bring a, you know, 6% debt deal into a private equity fund, right? And and you probably shouldn't be doing venture capital on the other end of the spectrum, but there is going to be a bandwidth of deals that you bring and risk profiles that you bring. And that's the portfolio that you're going to build. And, and I think that that's a fine mentality. And I think that the mid to high teens on the minerals front, that's a perfectly suitable return profile to build into that portfolio. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are gonna be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. 
Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. You know, on exiting minerals, I think what's interesting is the larger the asset, the more difficult the exit becomes, or by more difficult, I mean the more limited options you have. So let's just call it a $100 million asset. You would think the publics would be some of the players looking at that as a primary end buyer. Timing of the market right now is really difficult for publics just with issuing equity, right? It's uh, They're not well positioned to take stuff down right now. So there's a timing element there that may put them on the sidelines momentarily. And then you're looking at the pensions or the insurance companies that have established teams. There's only a handful of those. I think those will increase over time, but the pool is smaller. Now, as you go lower and lower, 75 to 50 million, the pool gets a little bigger. If you go 25 to 50 million, the pool gets even larger. And when you're looking at assets in the one to $15 million range, there is a slew of players, family office capital, high net worth funds start to come to the picture. They can be end buyers that hold into perpetuity. And so the reason I kind of spell that out is when you're exiting, is it since you can get money back through cash flow and get your returns over time, does it make sense to let stuff drip, drip, drip out the door opportunistically to the right buyers when you have a bigger pool, buyer universe, if you may, and then you get little capital gains along the way versus putting all your eggs in one basket and saying, I'm going to exit this. You know, I put $100 million to work. I'm going to try to exit it for 200 or 250 And now all of a sudden, you only have five potential buyers. What are your thoughts on that? Or uh, And then we'll get into some of the other strategies. But multiple small divestors along the way versus one big exit. I think it can definitely make sense to do that. And we've done that a little bit along the way. One of the great things about this asset class is it's pretty easily dividable. And, uh, you know, if you just tailor your approach to who you think the opportunity set is with on the exit, it's, it's pretty easy to do that. This is definitely not a market where it's the preferred path to go try and get a huge deal done. Although, yeah. you know, guys have successfully done that, right? Nick had a pretty large exit to Alliance and uh, Springbok exited to Kimball earlier this year. So you guys have done that, but I'm reading in between the lines, it looks like they prune their portfolio along the way as well. And so you can play both ends of that spectrum, correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I'll uh, I see Nick's name on the guest list. I'll toot his horn a little bit. What he was really good at was putting together a package that the market would like, you know, thinking about the other side. And when we think about Alliance specifically, I won't put words in their mouth, but the, uh, you know, it was just a very tailored package. It was very focused in certain areas. There was a disproportionate you know, activity on, on, on our blocks relative to even what you would consider kind of the core, the collectively accepted core of uh, those basins. And, you know, they did a good job packaging it in a way that was easily digestible. Everything was in pay status. It was easy to diligence. The title was good. You know, there's a lot of other things that go into getting those deals done. And, you know, they were just really good at, at managing that process. So one thing that's interesting, I think when you build something to be able to sell it with that in mind, so that kind of goes into the more rifle shot approach, having concentrated interest, one basin or two basins, right? If this is a long-term asset class, uh, it's hard to know what the market's going to look like in three years and five years and 10 years. Co- I mean, look at how drastically the market's changed this year with COVID. I know COVID's a bit of an outlier in terms of black swans, but what do you think is the best way to kind of prepare the strategy? Is having this kind of scattered approach really, really limit your options? If we can talk about a PDP strategy now, I know a lot of you all are starting to look at that. By nature, you have to be scattered. You can't put money to work saying, I'm going to be core of core of core, Midland Basin, and only by PDP. It's hard to put tons of capital to work. What you ultimately see, and, and look at all the big PDP players in the market. They're diversified, and that's by nature to put the money to work. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'd uh, love people to jump in and kind of talk to that point. There are a lot of questions in there. Well, I think concentration is great so long as it gets drilled. I mean, I think, honestly, we've probably seen that cut both ways. And the good thing about diversification is you're much more 
exposed to kind of the statistical reality of what's happening in the basin. So if you got a 1% interest across a huge swath, you're just kind of dependent on the activity level inside that basin versus having 15% interest in one block, then you are really dependent on that operator and their activity level. I would say, you know, one of the interesting things about having that concentrated position is that does give you the ability, I think, to have some unique conversations with the operator. You know, it's much harder to go drive activity if you've got a tiny interest in a block, but to the extent that your interest is meaningful, there's definitely some trading that can be done with the operator to create kind of a mutually beneficial situation because as everybody knows, really the biggest variable and value for these assets is timing, more so even than oil price. You've got to get the asset developed and have the cash flow come out of the ground at you. So I think that, you know, concentration is definitely important there. Maybe just a word on exits real quick. You know, you know, I, I agree with all the earlier comments we've seen We've participated in probably approaching 10 different exits of minerals from small to larger, maybe only three of those in excess of $100 million. And, you know, I think as Jason mentioned, another way to exit is simply to cash flow. So we're also making significant distributions out of cash flow each quarter, which isn't a bad outcome either. But, you know, I think that as the market evolves and changes, it's been a difficult time for transactions, period. You know, operated assets, mineral assets, I think the market's been a difficult one to transact in. We're maybe starting to see that turn the corner a little bit, but I do think, you know, large transactions are possible. It's not dissimilar from operated assets. I think that, you know, we're in a world where scale is important and being low cost is important and all those dollars drop to the bottom line. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see more transactions that help consolidate assets. As we all plan our travel and BD schedules for the next two quarters, A must-attend event that needs to be on your calendar is the Mark Mineral and Royalty Conference, taking place at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston on April 18th and 19th. With two days of action-packed networking, panel discussions, and presentations, the Mark Mineral and Royalty Conference proves to be one of the best networking opportunities of the year to get deals done and form new partnerships in the mineral space. For more information, please visit mineralconference.com or email info at mineralconference.com. Kyle, you talked about trading acreage or trading minerals, trading acreage. The, the bid-ass spread has been challenging since March, and so deal flow slowed down for a lot of people. Forget just exit, just deal flow and building the portfolio. I know, especially in the Permian, a lot of folks have looked at swaps and uh, doing things like that. How do you guys approach that as PE sponsors for your portfolio companies to core up acreage and or from a mineral strategy trade and try to incentivize drilling in certain areas where it's mutually beneficial. Anyone want to talk about that? Because that's kind of playing poker with the hand you're dealt right now, right? Instead of just sitting there in your hands, you can still optimize the portfolio through that mechanism. Anyone want to comment? Probably more relevant for the working interest strategies than minerals specifically. Be my short response. Very good. Here's a question from the audience. So talk about the ability to hold these assets longer, you cash flowing out your dividends. And if you shift towards a, a PDP strategy, that's a longer term strategy. But the question from the audience is how do you incentivize management teams? If there isn't going to be that capital gain at the end, how do you incentivize them to hang around that long? I think it's a viable question, right? Because they become more asset managers than uh, what the traditional teams have been, where I think they make their score on the exit. We'll love anyone to jump in on that. I'll jump on that. The way we've structured our deals with existing management teams is acknowledge that there would likely be an active investment period and a longer term holding period, seasoning period, if you will, where, um, you know, in a typical operated private equity deal, the management team is pretty locked up. They're prohibited from competing with you, from doing things that are possibly competitive differentiate the way we're treating our, our minerals partners where once the uh, once the commitment is spent, if both parties want to go their separate ways, we've structured it such that they can get paid through vesting eventually while possibly going out and starting their next venture. So we've acknowledged the mismatch between the work and the ultimate value realization and tried to uh, structure the incentives and, and the entities to match that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It aligns incentives and being realistic, right? So if you can time the market correctly, like Nick did at Wing, for instance, and exit, great. But if you can't, then you know there is more of a management aspect to that portfolio. 
the fund can kind of hold on to those, but then the management team can go out and do what they do best, which is build a company, build a portfolio, right? So that that's fantastic. Let's kind of dovetailing on that point a little bit. Let's get into something that a little controversial and that's, but something relevant, right? And that's consolidation within the portfolios. And Jason, you kind of mentioned there's that active period. And then there's that, that kind of line in the sand where it's, Hey, listen, we have to consolidate things and drive down costs. And it's just the nature of the business. And so there's been a lot of consolidation on the upstream side. And I know uh, a lot of that consolidation is starting to move its way towards minerals. So I know it's a sensitive topic, but if we can just address it, and there's a number of angles I want to take on this, but does anyone want to make any comments on that? I'll say this. Sorry, Kyle, I'll make it real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. Consolidation doesn't have to be nasty, right? A lot of times these holdings increase in value over time. And so it's in everybody's best interest to extend that time. And consolidation can decrease holding costs, especially if we're packed past that active asset acquisition period. And everybody does better if we've lengthened the runway. And so that's how we've gone about consolidation or think about consolidation in the mineral space is it, it just helps everybody achieve their goals, which is to maximize value. Yeah, Jason, I think that's really well said. You know, we are looking at a, a permian consolidation of our minerals. You know, there's been a, a lot of great effort from a lot of our partners who we think very highly of to accumulate what we think is kind of the best minerals position in the permian. And when you put it all together, it's got a lot of cash flow, a lot of really exciting upside. And I think Jason's right. There's that kind of the active management build period, and then there's the harvest period where you're cash flowing it. So we think that by putting those assets together, we're going to lower the costs and kind of increase the distributable cash flow for everybody. And all those guys will remain partners in that consolidation. And the second thing it does is it really gives us a platform that we think is better suited to do something strategic. And I think that could mean a number of different things, but we do believe that the asset class will continue to be consolidated and having a platform that is super low cost and generates a lot of cash flow and has a lot of upside could be an interesting place for other people to come park their assets, combine their assets. So we think that's one advantage is that by having that large platform, we're well positioned for that. And then, you know, the public equity market's always out there. It hadn't been robust here lately, but we think that this asset stacks up really well against some of the best of the best public mineral assets out there. And so we think that by taking the step to combine it, we've got that potential option in the future as well. And so, you know, we're going to continue on supporting those teams in their own separate ongoing mineral acquisition efforts. But the thought is to take some of those legacy assets that are captured and maturing and generating cash flow and really put them together onto a giant platform that, again, gives us some of those strategic advantages. We are consolidating portfolios um, the way that some of the other panelists are right now. But from our perspective, you know, there's obviously perspective of, you know, the owner of the asset, the, you know, the sponsor that's made the investments and the scalability and cost savings of, you know, taking these portfolios that are now in, you know, kind of a hold period or a um, or a seasoning period, as Jason put it, and rationalizing the, the number of people you need to go and do that, where really the, the heart of the value creation has already occurred. But from, from our perspective, I mean, the industrial logic on a broader scale, you know, makes a heck of a lot of sense because we're in a lot of cases, the beneficiary, we pickering energy partners, as we think about how and what we're going to be doing long-term in the mineral space, that we're speaking with a number of incredibly talented teams that could have been one of three or four or five teams managing similar portfolios across single sponsor, whereas the heavy lifting and the value creation has really already been achieved. And I'm, I don't want to suggest that it's a, it becomes an administrative role to, to manage these portfolios or anything close to that. But if you free up, you know, the balance of those teams to go and do what they're really good at, you know, I think on a broader level, you know, they're free to go and be truly, you know, economically productive for the industry, even though it kind of stinks at the time, I'm sure. And, you know, Jason said it doesn't have to be, you know, a nasty deal, but I'm sure it is challenging in a lot of ways, but it does free them up to go and do what they're really good at doing from our perspective. I don't have much else to add to that. I think you can find critics on both ends of the spectrum on this issue. Some think that they should consolidate down to one. Some think that there should be lots or that they should have a license to keep operating in perpetuity. You know, the big stone that gets thrown at us for the strategy is 
just the cost burden that's on top of it. And we have to be ever mindful of that. And so that's driving some of the decisions. And then, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, why not go all the way down to one? Historically, we actually haven't seen that much overlap amongst all of our buying entities, despite some overlap in focus areas. So no one team has a monopoly on relationships within these places. There's as long as we're still actively buying, I think it, we just have to make a judgment call on who we're doing that with and how many different lines in the water that we need. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals, or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. You know, when I uh, did my podcast episode with Josh Camp at Perpetual, he's had private equity backing in several funds he's done. And he went out and said, I think private equity is the best form of capital purely because of the data edge. You have these giant portfolios with all these port codes, all this technical data, all these rigged schedules. And in an ideal world, he was on the, and I don't want to speak for Josh here, but he was in the camp of you have one giant minerals portfolio. Now, I think your point, James, is fantastic in that no one has a monopoly on relationships. Now, what Kyle's alluding to in their consolidating their Permian portfolio, you could very much argue there's a bit of a both that needs to be had. You have your regional teams building up these portfolios. Can they exit them? Great. Everyone makes a bunch of money. If they can't, you go into this harvest period, and then maybe you roll up the assets because scale is the name of the game for potential IPO when the markets make sense. But if you get that scale, then you're starting to pick up the bits and the pieces or you become more of a yield co and you can kind of fill in the checkerboard all across the US versus trying to put tons of dollars to work in a very concentrated area where you need that local expertise, those local relationships. So I don't know, just kind of thinking out loud here, some good takeaways, but definitely we'll, we'll see. We're in the early innings of this space, right? So it's not like we have two, three decades of patterns to look back on. I think you guys are really leading the way. And I think it's hard to, hindsight's 2020, as they say, but a couple more things on this topic, and then I want to move on. So one, when you look at consolidation, a lot of your EMP companies have developed drop-down entities for royalties, and that could be cleaner, right? If they ever want to sell them or spin them out or have them go public if they ever got big enough, i.e. like a bike for Diamondback situation. Have you ever looked at, in order to achieve that scale, taking, and this is purely hypothetical, a royalties firm that you've backed, and then in the respective basins they operate in, take those drop-down entities from the EMPs and roll them under that royalties vehicle? Is that more driven by a potential buyer for a transaction on an exit, or is that something you've looked at internally from a portfolio optimization standpoint? 
not, I know it's probably easier said than done because they have different struck partnerships and different stages of where the capital is deployed. But if anyone wants to comment on that, that's something that's been mentioned to me just as a hypothetical and calls. And I just wanted to touch upon it. I think carving off overrides and royalty interests that are within working interest vehicles, you do that with, so that you have the flexibility to go capture a different multiple at exit, really different discount rate. I don't know that it's really part of a grand strategy to consolidate all of them, but you certainly have the flexibility to do that. It gets complicated as it, more entities get involved and uh, certainly multiple funds. That's uh, something we try and avoid if we can. The other thing, so the EMP royalty alliance or partnership, however you want to frame it, is something that's become more in vogue over the years. And there's some clear benefits to that, right? You have a line of sight on the drilling schedule, and you can leverage that to build up a great position and leverage pad drilling and really build up a nice asset base very quickly. What happens in the scenario where you need to roll up the EMP part of that, uh, that partnership or the EMP part of that partnership? gets acquired or goes bankrupt or whatever, a variety of the scenarios, just one part of that partnership isn't there. One of the strategic advantages is having those two join at the hip, but that's not really a consolidation question. It, it's related to it. I was just curious to kind of, that has to be thought about when you're, you're partnering these. It's not like they both exit at the exact same time, but anyone want to comment on that quickly? I think if I understand the question, I guess what I acknowledge is that partnerships are valuable but I'd call it more dating and less marriage. Like we need access to their information. And once we've got that, we can make a purchase and we own that asset. And if the relationship dissolves after that, then so be it. We've kind of gotten what we need out of it. So they're not long-term, I guess is what I meant by dating, not marriages or don't have to be in order to be valuable. So let's move on as we wrap up the discussion here, more around the portfolio construction and the strategies that go into that. So a very quick recap, Jason, I think you're the most diversified. You guys are Haynesville, Appalachia, DJ, Anadarko, Permian, and then Carl's team at Haymaker is going to be looking all over for the right opportunity, right? But the rest of the panelists are very much Permian focused. So just let's go around the horn on uh, basins. I know gas has become more vogue, especially since March. It's easier to hedge. So underwriting uh, transactions is easier. What are your, y'all's thoughts? We'll start with Appalachia and has your team kind of done studies and how you've looked at it as a kind of short, medium, long-term. Maybe Jason, you can start since I know Horizons recently start to look at Appalachia. Yeah. The reason we are where we are is because we were willing to pay a premium for predictability. And so we try to be in basins that are relatively stable where we can count on the inventory. There's active development right now, such that we're not waiting on something to happen in 10 or 12 years. And then, you know, this is only kind of a joke, but the reason that we're not terribly active in the Permian is because my pals on the line are, it's, it's kind of a crowded room and it's a little bit harder to compete. So we, uh, but, but emphasis there on, we try to be places that are predictable, including Appalachian. Just, I um, may follow on with that just real quick. The reason that most of our activity has been in the Permian is because when we've been not predominantly buying undeveloped land, you go where the rigs are, and that's where the rigs are. It's as simple as that. As our focus shifts, as that becomes a less important part of what we're buying right now and in the future, probably, I think just a lot of these plays are maturing to a point where if you're underwriting it mostly on PVP ducks and kind of wells in progress, maybe high confidence permits your aperture opens up a little bit, I think. And, you know, one of the other points that was made earlier, I think Jason made it, when I don't think any of us are underwriting any of these deals with multiple expansion and a near-term exit is the way that we get our return. You look at the asset, you do fundamental underwriting based on very reasonable assumptions, not stretching on much of anything. And if you end up having to hold it for 10 years and generate your return through cash flow, that's great. If you can find an opportunistic spot to exit faster and boost your returns that way, that's great too. But, you know, I think the aperture is, is wider now. Yeah. Tim, maybe I'll hop in here as well. You know, obviously we've had, you know, the vast majority of our exposure has been in the Permian. I think that's for some of the reasons both, you know, all the panelists have mentioned, predictability, timing. I would tell you historically, we've also 
invested in areas where we felt like we had information, which is something you touched on earlier, Tim. We all do. All of us have a lot of information inside of our shops based on our activity across basins. And so certainly we've gotten active and more involved in certain areas where we felt like we had an edge and we had information before the market did. And so that's something that's driven us in the past. You know, our exposure now, we do have exposure outside the Permian. Some of that's through Kimball. You know, we sold assets to Kimball in 2019. We did receive stock as part of that transaction. So we think that, you know, we still have exposure there through that. We think that they've done a good job of acquiring a diverse set of minerals that ban across lots of different basins and give you kind of a diversified exposure. And, you know, I think they'll continue to do that. We still hold minerals privately as well that aren't inside the Permian. That is, that does remain our largest focus area today and going forward. But, you know, I think that there's other basins and other areas where we would definitely be interested in, in accumulating minerals just based on, you know, again, pace of development, which to us comes back to economics. And so just thinking through where are the the best drill bed economics in the country for operators. And as mentioned, a lot of times that will be reflected in the rig count, but that's where we like to go focus. Lex, you guys are looking at a handful of basins as you look to kind of build the portfolio up. So thoughts on, you know, why you're looking in the places you're looking? Yeah, so it's a little bit of everything, right? It's, you know, Jason's point, it's, you know, a search for for better value to, you know, to Kyle and James's point. It's also a, a consideration of how quickly you're going to see drilling activity on the minerals and all that kind of goes into the calculus. I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's been a very, very interesting cost of capital discovery process for us over the last kind of 18 to 24 months. But it's pretty interesting, uh, you know, over the 12 or 15 projects we've worked, you know, in earnest on, and, and when I say worked in earnest on, you, know, you look at the package of minerals, you you look at the production, you look at the ducts, you look at the spud wells, you look at the permits and number of rigs and you put a set of assumptions on them it's pretty interesting whether you're in the Haynesville or Appalachia or the Rockies or the Permian the Permian's a little bit of a because it's been relatively competitive during the times when we've been active in the mineral space it does have a premium on it there are more rigs there and it's just it's the you know it's the most active basin out there but it's pretty interesting when you do that fundamental work how the just how tight the bandwidth of return profiles across basins looks right and so I absolutely agree. You know, information's information, and that's typically pretty specific. A lot of the packages we've looked at have been these diversified portfolios where you're not trying to necessarily have a, you know, better information over several several sections or a particular part of a county, but you're trying to control for, you know, drilling activity through a diversified portfolio. So a lot of those packages have very similar costs, you know, costs of capital. I mean, I think, you know, the, the sixth rate deal, the Kimmeridge deal, you know, they, they all have similarities and one of them is the, you know, the price to, you know, to get access to capital. You know, I'll, I'll add to that, you know, we've become more and more interested in assets that have direct access to, you know, Gulf Coast located markets. In most cases, we love Appalachia because it's the best gas basin in the country, but we've, we've become nervous that it may turn out to be a demand island. And I know we're not talking minerals anymore. We're talking you know, supply chain and logistics, but we worry about basis up there over the long haul over. And it's the same thing in the Rockies and other basins where you have to cross big parts of the country that may have a variety of political, you know, kind of leanings. And it makes us comfortable and happy to be close to the coast these days. You had mentioned the Sixth Street deal, uh, Cambridge, and then Kyle Pegasus did a $100 million deal with Blackstone Minerals. Those are the three largest deals since March. And Traditional logic would say the best end buyers for 100 plus million dollar deals are the pensions, the publics and the insurance companies. But it's been private equity alone doing that. Is scale an attractive thing right now? Is that where you guys have an advantage? Scalable opportunities or just love to go into that, just the dynamics of those deals, your perspectives, how they were structured, et cetera. I guess I don't know that I necessarily agree that publics or the uh, pensions are necessarily the best buyers of assets like that. You know, we touched on some of the challenges earlier that I think they face. And I think there's inside of the institutional capital, there's a pretty limited number of folks who actually are set up to do direct investing like that. But, you know, for us on the Pegasus deal in particular, look, we're, we're excited about it. It's very high quality acreage. You know, I think it was a win-win deal for us and for Blackstone, the public seller. We bought a, a kind of a, a slice of their interest across the Permian, and it allowed them to 
raised some cash at a time that they, they're a conservative company and wanted to make sure they had a super solid balance sheet given what was going on in the world. And so I think that achieved some things for them. And we think that we're excited with the assets we're able to purchase and excited to see them perform going forward. So it's been a pretty difficult environment for deal making as we all touched on, but we were excited to be able to get that deal done when we did. This came from the audience, ESG. How is ESG discussed in the context of minerals with your portfolios? I know it's a uh, it's a topic you can't ignore. There's a lot of headwinds there on raising capital. Is it encouraged to build portfolios around EMP companies that have good carbon footprints and good sustainability practices? I know it, it can be challenging to do that, but I'm just curious at the PE sponsor level where the ESG discussion is in regards to the mineral portfolio companies. And then we'll, we'll wrap up the webinar. Yeah, I say this a bit tongue in cheek, right? But if you want to get ESG royalties, you need to get you need to go and, and get long lithium or you know wind farm royalties. It's hard to control for ESG around buying minerals. I mean, I guess you could say I'm I'm only gonna buy under operators that have active ESG programs. That seems like you're tying an arm behind your back as an investor. But yeah, I mean, we looked at some stuff that we consider ESG, you know, approved royalty type asset classes, and they're more it's as I as I said before, it's it's lithium plays or you know stuff connected to wind farms, solar farms, which there's some hypocrisy there, which we don't necessarily need to get into. That's probably has you know content enough for a whole nother call. But that's our point quick view. I think with minerals specifically, it's hard for us to incorporate that except for risk mitigation. So we can certainly try and avoid the highest carbon assets. There's no direct carbon tax in the US today, but someday there could be. And so, you know, if you try and avoid the assets that are most likely to be under fire, that's one way that it can be incorporated. Other than that, it's hard for us to influence what those operators are actually doing, except for the ones that we control. Perfect. Well, gents, thanks for your time. I think this is a great discussion. I, I just relaunched the poll. We'll give everyone a couple of minutes here to just fill that out. But it looks like you did a good job, if I'm not mistaken. The unsure category was 22%, and that's basically been shifted 100% over to agree that there is a role for PE. So uh, maybe you guys have a career in, in politics going forward. You can persuade the crowd. <laughs> well, everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in. And uh, Kyle, Jason, Lex, James, appreciate your time. Uh, and I know there was a couple of questions that put you on the hot seat there. I think you did a great job answering them fairly and, and objectively. So Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the holidays when they get here. Everyone, thanks again for tuning in. And like I said, if we haven't had a chance to chat, we'd love to jump on a call, talk minerals, talk your strategy, talk deal flow, and see how we can help out. All the best. Enjoy the rest of the week, gentlemen. Thanks, thanks everybody. Good to see you guys. Thanks, Tim. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.